Welcome to Interplay, Conversations in Music. This is Michael Shapiro, your host, and today I have a most special guest. But you know, when I say special guest, I really mean much more, because Lyra Downs, hello. Nice to see you. Hello, hello. Lyra Downs is a great pianist, but she's more than a pianist. She's a force in our social culture as a, a human rights activist, as somebody who just doesn't play Chopin waltzes, not to put down Chopin waltzes, but plays meaningfully and um, with purpose. You know, Lyra, you, you've written recently for your album, Some of These Days, album using an old term. You wrote, <laughs> in your words, we are strong, we are resourceful, we've come through darkness into light over and over again. Let's lean on our ancestors and the lessons they have taught us about hope, courage, and above all, unity. What did you mean by that? So the album, as we call it, is a collection of freedom songs and spirituals. So when I reference the ancestors, you know, and their hope, I'm directly referring to songs that came out of slavery, that, you know, even in the most impossible and degrading and terrible conditions, we're expressing hope, you know, either on this earth or in the next. But nevertheless, that holding on to hope, which kept a people going, you know, and, and songs that have come back over and over again as we confront new struggles and new um, new ways of overcoming them. So I, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm just referring to, yes, this long arc of history that we are just a small part of. I do want to talk to you about your background, because I think in your performing, it comes out of who you are as a person. Can you speak about your folks, your parents? How did they meet, and what was the meaning of that meeting for your artistry? I'm curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a product of a time and place. My mom, my parents met during the civil rights movement. They met at a sit-in in San Francisco. My mom was a Jewish girl from Akron, Ohio. My dad uh, grew up in Harlem, black man from Harlem. And they both, you know, ended up on the West Coast. And they had three girls. I'm the first. And I think, you know, they were so much sort of a portrait of that moment and that movement and the hope. You talk about hope, you know, that was experienced and that was like the foundation of people's lives and actions you know to to get married and to create this family they really believed that we were going to grow up in a better different world and of course you know to some extent we did you can't argue that we that we did but there's always there's there was still so much work to do so and i think that i inherited the clear responsibility to keep doing that work and the path that i chose was music you know i'm not a civil rights attorney like my mom um but i think that we can all through whatever voice we have keep fighting that fight and i've found a really satisfying way to do that through music that feels useful it feels meaningful and um, it feels of my time like i want to be a musician of my time Let's talk about that, because music is composed of a lot of different things. For a composer, in my case, it comes out of a lot of different elements, which we can discuss some other time. But for a performer saying, I want to identify myself with my background and my beliefs, how do you portray that in what you record or that you perform when there are concerts? I'm just curious. How do you put that across? Well, I think that my mission has been to um, present myself in 
the light of what I can make out of our tradition. Like, I need to explain that. So, you know, I think most people, if you ask them, would classify the music that we make, concert music, classical music, whatever we want to call it, as, you know, belonging to a specific group of people and specific origins. And I find huge interest in retelling that story and broadening that lens and, you know, uncovering buried voices and really showing the diversity of what this music can be. And I think, you know, I have a, I have a unique presence to share that reality. Um, I feel like what we're doing right now, <laughs> what we're doing right now as a culture, you know, sort of looking back and revisiting this history, you know, whose history is it? What story have we been telling? That's what I've been doing with this music for the last 10 years. It needs to be done. It needs to be done, and it's in many of your al uh, uh, albums. Here I go again, recordings, we should say. You write also that this music pulls at so many parts of me and pulls them together. The part that is a strong woman, the part that is an audacious artist, the part that is my parents' daughter, like you just spoke. This is my history and ours. Um, for me, as a creative as a creative musician, as a composer and a writer and a conductor, I think about these things every second. They inform what I do. And it looks like they inform everything about what you do. Um, but then it comes to performing the music. And we'll use the example of the Florence Price Piano Concerto in One Movement, which you performed with the Boston Pops and Keith Lockhart, I think fairly recently, correct? Mm-hmm. Just about a year ago, yeah. What drew you to that piece and to her music? And tell us a little about her before you start, and then tell us about how you were drawn to it. Why Florence Price and not somebody else? Well, specifically that evening was part of a series of concerts that was curated by my friend Rihanna Giddens with the intent of, you know, sharing the work of Black composers. So we were we were presenting music by Florence Price, but also by Billy Strayhorn and... Um, Hazel Scott and, you know, a range of artists whose names are not so well known in the concert hall. And it was a beautiful, beautiful experience, you know, Boston Pops, Symphony Hall, um, capacity audience, three nights. We were, we were in residence for three nights and it, there was just this joy of, of discovery. There was, you could feel this energy and excitement to know that there's more, that there's more to this story than we have known. Um, and I'm so grateful to be part of those moments. The price, the price concerto is a pretty remarkable work. She calls it a concerto in one movement. It's really in three distinct sections and it represents really the breadth of what she did as a composer. You know, it starts in this very romantic virtuoso place. It goes through this very lyrical jazz tinge second section. And then it ends with this exuberant dance. that's full of, you know, African American rhythms and a really a distinct sound. Um, it was great to play it with Keith. He, he's such a scholar and was so so fascinated by the piece and so excited to be in it. Um, what you were saying a, a minute ago, I think it's about lineage. You know, you have this clear lineage as a musician. You can look back and trace your musical ancestors, right? And I can too, um, for a woman and for a woman of color, it's a little more complicated. And the, you know, the those, ancestors have to uh, 
represent a lots lots of different points of connection you know that are maybe a little bit less clear but when you find a, a figure like florence price there's this feeling of kinship you know to know that somebody went before you and broke down barriers that were so tremendously much more difficult than anything I've ever experienced, you know, and had this creative impulse that pushed her through those barriers. And she was, you know, this incredibly impactful figure in her time. I don't, we should, we should say that in 1933, she made history by being the first black female composer ever performed by a major symphony orchestra. That was it. But that was it. That was, she had that Frederick Stock performance and never Mm -hmm. again, any major orchestra. Stokowski didn't pick her up. Toscanini didn't pick her up. Radzinski, any of those guys, Bruno Volta, certainly not, you know, one shot over. And she was raising a family. She had two husbands. She struggled. Oh, she she struggled. Awfully. And she still wrote until she died in the early 50s, I think. Yeah. She wrote and wrote and wrote. And wrote and wrote. You know, and and then her music disappears. And then her music is found abandoned in tattered manuscripts, you know, in a falling down house. In Illinois in 2009. And then I get to bring her music back. What more fun? <laughs> what more amazing? I want to talk, you've, you've spoken about the heritage in spiritual music, uh, the black population, but I'm curious about your mother's background. Any influence on you from the civil rights <laughs> lawyer, Jewish woman, raising a daughter and two other daughters and all that stuff? Yeah, my mom is pretty much unstoppable. Um, so I inherited that. <laughs> she's um, she's a huge dreamer, and I think she raised us, you know, with this notion that you really, truly can do anything. You've got to figure it out, and then you just go do it. And I think that my career in music has been very much influenced by my chaotic and you know um, eccentric childhood. My my father died when I was nine, so it was just my mom. And um, homeschooling was a bit of a <laughs> of a mess, and you know we we just kind of we moved around a lot. Then we moved to Europe, and we just like traveled to different cities. And it was when I look back, I I can't make any sense of it. But I have not um, lived my life in music according to any rules that I know. I have just you know followed these things that drive my curiosity, and somehow I convince other people to go along with me. Um, but that's it. I mean, I do, I owe her a tremendous debt of gratitude for just making, giving me the notion that I could do such a thing. Any <laughs> influence of, uh, of the Eastern European tradition on your play of Jewish music, let's say? Probably, but probably more from, you know, all of those, all of those old school teachers I had as a kid. <laughs> right? Let's let's talk about arts advocacy, because I know you've been active with a lot of organizations that are really working for advocacy in the arts and mentorship, a few Plan International, Sphinx Organization, Lower East Side's Girls Club, uh, Watts Learning Center, NPR's From the Top, a lot of stuff. So you're obviously trying to pass things on. So which I do all the time, too. It's kind of like what Lenny taught me, which is you've got to be a rabbi for your entire life, even when you're conducting an orchestra. I'm not so sure about that. But <laughs> talk to me about advocacy. What are you trying to impart, and how do you do it? So what I've learned 
you know how when you're a musician and you grow up and there's this thing about how music is the universal language and music can move mountains and you kind of know that on one level and on another level you think maybe that's just the thing that we say and then maybe you experience it and i've experienced it i mean i've been lucky enough to experience it in so many ways but i think that the place where i experience it and it just drives me every single day is in working with young people you know the impact that you can have if you enter their lives through music through something beautiful that they haven't experienced before and a story that can connect them to their own human experience that can immediately open their ears and their minds and their hearts to something outside of what they know and i'll tell you you know i'll give you the example that always stays with me in 2016 on the morning after the election i had to get up at 3 a.m and fly to louisville kentucky um and i dragged myself out of bed after you know a sleepless night and i made my way across this like crazily divided country that i didn't recognize and i get to kentucky and i'm working in these um, i did a concert that night and then i was in school classrooms for three days and in louisville louisville is a very segregated city and there were kids in these classrooms the teacher told me they hadn't spoken to each other for weeks months i guess because of where their parents were aligning themselves politically and here I come, this lady they've never seen before, and I'm sharing music with them by Florence Price, but also by, you know, Roy Harris and Copeland. And I'm kind of giving them each, from whatever their perspective, some pathway into the American experience that includes them. But it also includes that other kid across the classroom. And like, you could see the lights going on and there was a conversation in the classroom that day about racism and about, you know, lack of opportunity and stuff that had not been speakable until then. And so I always think that my, the greatest thing I can do on any given day of my life, and I'm doing that virtually now, by the way, I'm not going to, they're not going to keep me away from the kids. But if I can go into a classroom, you know, a virtual space, and I can touch a child who then maybe that evening over dinner says to his or her parents, I learned this thing today, you know, and it starts a new conversation or just a new, some new way of looking at things, I think that that's an incredible opportunity to change the way that a person moves in the world. What's well, a moment of healing, which mm -hmm. is very much part of both of your traditions and your family. Uh, yeah. the, you know, what was broken we bring together. In togetherness, hopefully we have strength. Um, I'm curious about something that Otto Klemper spoke about in his wisdom. He was a kind of a tart character. From I never spoke to him. He died before I was really active. But I see interviews in his writings. And it's true in the production of what he did. There's something about his conducting where he gets under the notes and brings to it something that is not in other conductors necessarily. There's especially in, in certain uh, compositions of uh, Mrs. Solemnus is one great example. But when you're playing any of these composers, it, whether it be Aaron or Roy or Florence or us living people, what's your first step? Tell, tell the young musicians out there or even mm -hmm. the, the, your contemporaries or, or elders, how do you approach a piece? You've got some pieces before you. You know something about the composer. You know something about the period. I mean, Florence was an example 
it, it could be looked at, oh, it's sentimental. We're just resurrecting this poor lady. She had three kids. She was performed once by the Chicago Symphony. Blah, blah, blah. We're, you know, it, you could mm-hmm. have, that attitude could be taken. I think it has been taken. There was no question. But you're an activist as a, as a, as a human being. I'm not talking about pianists. But now we're, we're playing music. You're, mm-hmm. you're in Boston playing the concerto with Keith and the Boston Pops, okay? In this hall of the Boston Symphony. How are you getting under the notes of Florence Price's concerto or any other piece that you, is being performed and people are hearing for the first time? What's extra? Look, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how to answer that question. Honestly, I think that, you know, there are just some parts of who I am as a player. Um, you know, I always have the hardest time when I'm giving a masterclass or a lesson. If I encounter one of those young pianists, and there are very many of them who attack the piano this way, like it's, they're going down into the piano, because I never think about my instrument that way. I am. I mean, I, I like that metaphor under the nose, but I always am. Like, I'm always feeling like I'm bringing it up out of here. So I'm not, maybe I'm not, you know, a natural born pianist. Maybe I was meant to be a singer or a cellist or something else. I just don't think about the notes that way. Um, and then this element of story that's inside them. I, this is not something physical or even intentional that I do. This is just how I feel the music. This is how it comes out. No, but it's clear in your playing that it is not just a piece. It's not an athletic ec- exercise. There's something else going on, which mm-hmm. draws me to it. And, and it, it confirms what Norman Lebrecht said to me in my talk with him about those very few, the really best, the great ones who think about and feel and worry about things that are not necessarily there. Bruno Valti used to talk about that in an interview. There's a famous recorded interview when he's at the end of his life. He's in L.A. enjoying the... Um, it's not like New York, which is Allegro Cambrio. This is more, uh, you know, I don't, he doesn't say Arioso, but it's just so wonderful to be among the palm trees and the oranges, <laughs> you know. But Bruno Valta said, if you don't know the brook and you don't know the trees, you can't understand uh, Beethoven's uh, uh, pastoral. But then there was Toscanini, who, you know, it was they say it was all about music, but it's not really true about him. Look at the way he stood up to Mussolini and Hitler. Mm-hmm. And the way he understood Verdi and Puccini in particular, and certainly Beethoven. So, a different generation. People forget, in 1945, Arturo Toscanini devoted the entire season to American composers. The whole season. Including my teacher, Ellie Siegmeister, whose Western Suite was premiered by Toscanini. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking about your recordings, um, and when you put together a recording of many of the recordings you've done in the past 10 years, it's not just a compilation of, let's say, all of the Chopin waltzes like Rubinstein did in the mid-60s with his son there at the studio in Rome. You don't do that. You start with some sort of premise, at least in some of the recordings, and you put them together, like the most recent one. But tell me, what's what's getting into you now? Where are you going with this? Where are the next... Lara Downs recordings coming from and do you have any sense of what they'll be right now we're in quarantine and um actually this Friday I have a collection coming out called the bedtime sessions because I just started recording lullabies here at home on my piano during quarantine um which sounds I mean at first it just 
felt like an easy, peaceful thing to do. And then it, I mean, it also assumed this deeper meaning because I don't know about you, but I've been having for the first time in my life, the kind of nightmares that wake you up screaming. I think sleep is so, you know, so difficult right now. There's so much grief and stress and we're all so scared. So, you know, I, I feel like these, these lullabies, which are, you know, again, I, I just went into deep nerd state and started researching, you know, all this beautiful music that you might not even expect to call, to call lullabies. Um, I think I can never, I can never tell you in advance what the next project's going to be. It just comes usually, you know, comes all of a sudden, and then I do it really fast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you talk very lightly about this stuff, but you're a very serious artist, despite the lightness of this conversation. Um, there are pianists that only think about career. I know, and conductors and composers and musicians. I don't have to say pianists. It can be a cellist or whatever. And they think of career. This piece I'm going to play in that place, it's going to help my career. I'm going to play the Rachmaninoff Second Piano Concerto in front of the Eiffel Tower, and I'm going to dress appropriately. I'm not naming names. But I'm going to write that down. <laughs> okay. And it's going to be on national t TV, and the Eiffel Tower is going to start going into great you know, fireworks at the end of the piece. You don't think that way at all. Some people would say you don't seem to, quote, care about whether that concert or that recording will have a, quotes, career change. Because I think something else is driving you. Talk to me about that. What's driving you, Lyra Downs? I don't want to keep saying stories, but, you know, messages and missions. And, and Stories are important. Stories are really important. Stories are how we understand everything from, you know, our earliest childhood. So I really do think that stories are important. And when you talk about, you know... How do you spend a lifetime? And, you know, maybe this has to do with the fact that my father died when I was really young and I saw that, you know, loss can happen and somebody's life can be cut short. And I think that we're so privileged as musicians to have long lives in our music. We start when we're babies, you know, and many of us go until our last days. Let's hope. But I think I've, right? But I've always had this understanding that you just you use that time well and um like i said you know there was a lack of like rule abiding um pol politeness in me i don't know i just thought that all things were possible and i feel like my my job i, I know what my job is i know what my job is and i always say to young players you know don't try to be the best pianist in the world. That doesn't exist. There's no such thing. Be the best version of yourself that you can be, you know? And that's not easy because first you have to find out who you are. So if you're lucky enough to do that, if you're lucky enough to, you know, find the thing that drives you and the thing that you can do well, the thing that you have to give, then do that thing. I mean, you know this as as a composer. Still working you, on it. You know, you're not going to... <laughs> <laughs> right, right, me too. But I will say that now I really know much more than I think I ever knew. And I praise longevity. You know, Dr. King said longevity has its place. He knew it, and he was such a young man. My God, when we think about that. Let's talk about longevity. God willing, we can get out and about 
and do things. I mean, I write orchestral music and opera these days, yeah. big pieces. Yeah. They, mean, they need a congregation of people together to play and to hear. Um, to end this, I want to ask you, where do you want to be? Where do you want to go? You've actually shown a great progress, I think, in the past 10 years with these recordings and this mess- these messages that you've sent to the public and to the children and to the future. But what's your future? What do you want? So first of all, I think when we come out the other side of this, nothing will be the same. I think the way that you know we, we share our music and make our music is just going to be different. I'm actually really interested in using this time to build on what is possible. You know, I spent, I'm not kidding, I spent 14 hours on Sunday <laughs> making a video module for classrooms about the life and music of Florence Price. Because it's really hard for me, you know, to engage with 40 kids in a Zoom space. And so I thought, let's, I should make something that they can experience and then I can follow up with them and we can talk about it. That's better than me sitting here at my piano and trying to keep them engaged in their little Zoom windows. And I'm putting this thing together and all of a sudden, you know, I'm realizing everything that I can fold into this 15 minute video, they can learn about the Great Migration, you know, and the Chicago Black Renaissance and they can learn about Jacob Lawrence and segregation and what it meant, you know, and and just like this whole world comes together. And I thought, what what if we use this time to really harness that power, you know, so that you ask, where do I want to be? I want to be where I'm needed. And I think that on the other side of this, yes, I really do want to, you know, be with the people. I, I miss it so much. But also, what if I can do more from wherever I am? You know, what if we develop a, a way that we're in closer contact and we're in more regular contact. I think the hardest thing for me is how I'm, you know, here and there and I'll go into a community, I'll be in Chicago for three days and then I'm gone and I don't see that audience or those kids again for, you know, another what, two years. And this way, I I think that we really can, I mean, until now we've been in panic mode and we've been trying to figure out how to make do. But if we really focus on what we can build here, there's a lot of potential. Well, Lara Downs, thank you so much for telling your story. You know, at the end of Hamilton, there's uh, the song, Who Will Tell Our Story? Well, you're telling the story. Larry Downs, thank you for being on uh, Interplay, Conversations in Music. This is your host, Michael Shapiro.